Please take up your Bibles and turn with me in them to the book of Proverbs. Today we are in the book of Proverbs. We are in chapter three. We're going to cover some verses that are honestly very familiar as I heard my mom and dad repeatedly as I was growing up quote Proverbs three, five and six as the means by which we got through financial difficulties and and health difficulties. But um, it is good to be able to look at them in the context that they are here. Not that mom and dad did anything wrong in the way they interpreted or applied Proverbs three, five and six. But we're going to consider those words as we look at finding God's favor in our life. And so we will read today in Proverbs chapter 3, we will read verses 1 through 12. Hear God's word. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your soul. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Let us pray. Our God and father above, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with who we are, we as humans should seek to find favor with you. So as we look at Proverbs 3, 1 through 12 today, Show us those things in there that lead us to a life which you delight in, a life in which favor is found with you. Open our eyes and our ears to see your glory today as we look at these verses. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Repetition. Let me say that again. Repetition. Do I need to repeat that? I've been sporadically using an app lately called Duolingo. We were watching a TV show about the royal family and it talked about Prince Charles. When he was crowned Prince of Wales, he, he learned Welsh in order to be, in order to be able to give his speech in Welsh. So I decided, hey, my ancestry is Welsh. Maybe I should learn Welsh. It would be fun. Now, it's kind of silly. There's absolutely no reason to. There's nobody around here that speaks Welsh. I'm not going to Wales anytime soon, but hey, I thought it would be neat. One of the things that frustrates me about the app Duolingo is that you, you kind of progress through levels. And as you progress through the levels learning the language, you, you move on to other levels. But every now and then, this little notification pops up on the app that says, hey, go back and repeat the level that you did before. I don't need to repeat that level. I learned it the first time. But it's not going to let me move on until I repeat what I had done before. And guess what I found out? I didn't learn it as well the first time as I thought I did. I get a lot of them wrong and I have to repeat it again. 
The book of Proverbs, especially the first 10 chapters, first nine chapters can be like that. In fact, today's passage is like that. It opens up with a repetition. My son, do not forget my teaching. We've seen a version of this in chapter one, verse eight. We've seen another version of it in chapter two, verse one. We see a version of it here in chapter three, verse one. And we are going to see it several other times throughout these first nine chapters of Proverbs. Why is that, do you think? Have you ever worked with children? I helped mom when I was in middle school and high school. I helped her over the summers when she was working at a, uh, a daycare center. She had the two-year-old class. And if I remember correctly, there were certain students every summer that I helped her out with her two-year-old class that you just had to tell them the same thing over and over again every day. And if I'm honest with myself, that wasn't the first time my mom had to tell a child something over and over again every day. We only learn things through repetition. They only stick with us through repetition. They, they describe it as though you are cutting paths through your brains for this information to stick. Have you ever walked through the woods the first time? Maybe you marked your trail with some string or some paint, but you turned around and you wondered, how did I get here? But the hundredth time you go through the woods, that trail is clearly marked for you there so that you know where you're going. The father has to do that again for his son here in Proverbs chapter three. And in another way that he's already said twice, he tells the son, don't forget my teaching, my instructions, keep them in your heart. The word forget there is a is a word of will. It's a word of volition. It's basically my son, don't turn your back on my teachings, but keep my commands, obey them and put them in your heart. Twice in the first four verses here, the father references to the son that these commands need to be internalized, need to become part of the very being of the son. The heart in the Old Testament is not just the muscle that pumps blood and nutrients around your body. The heart is the center of the being, the center of the will, the place where your emotions and your intelligence meets in order to help you make decisions and to walk through life. And the father alludes to and references Deuteronomy chapter four or six verses four through nine as he talks to the son in these first four, four verses. Hear those words from Deuteronomy six. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Many Israelites took these commands from Deuteronomy chapter six and took them literally. They would have little hats with boxes on them that they could stick scripture in or little bracelets with scripture on them that that they could keep along with them or they would carve into the stone doorways the scripture. But it, it's not necessarily a literal command that that God is giving through Moses in Deuteronomy. It's a command to make the words of God so much a part of your life that they become internalized. They become part of your emotional response to everything. They become part of your thought response to life. They become so much a part of who you are that they just kind of bubble out 
Every time as you walk through life. And that's what the father is telling his son to do here with the commands and with the teachings that he has given to him over his lifetime. The word son here, as it is through most of this first portion of the book of Proverbs, describes a man who has been raised under the teaching of his parents and is now ready to enter the world and to begin living life on his own. And the father gives two benefits here of the son internalizing the father's teaching. The first is that he will have a long and prosperous life. Prosperous is a word that shows up other times throughout the book of the Bible, all the books of the Bible as peace. It's a word that means a full and complete life lived in reconciliation with God. It's it's not merely material wealth or material prosperity. It's that abundant life that Jesus spoke of as he spoke in John. And the long life has a double meaning as well. Um, the, the, the phrase that is translated, um, then you will, uh, the phrase that is translated, yes, where did it go? Oh, there it is, verse 2. They will prolong your life many years. That phrase is used of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, verse 10, that after the suffering servant has taken the stripes, that are due our sins. He is given a long life. Years are added to his life. And the picture there is an eternal picture of our life being prolonged. It's not just living to a ripe old age here on earth. It is living a life reconciled to God for all eternity. So we'll have a prosperous and long life. But the second benefit of internalizing the teaching of the fathers is that we find favor with man and with God. Many of us, I don't need to expound or go into deep explanation of what it means to find favor with men. Look at Solomon's life as he was given wisdom by God. People came from around the queen of Sheba and people from other nations came to see, to test and to find that he was truly wise and they left in awe of him. Samuel grew in favor with God and with man. And Samuel was respected throughout his life by the Israelites. And we're told in echoing that first Samuel two passage in Luke chapter two, that Jesus found favor with God and men as he grew and as he walked. But how do we find favor with God? In the rest of this passage, as we'll look at today, the father gives us four descriptions of what favor with God looks like, as well as some conditions that we must meet in order to find that favor with God. The first thing is that trust brings favor from these two verses that my mom and dad quoted for so many years, so many times. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. When we think of trust, we typically think of belief. But it's interesting that as the scholars who translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek a couple hundred years before Christ was born, whenever they came upon this word here that's translated for as trust, they didn't use the typical word for belief. They used the word that we typically think of as hope. Trust is not merely belief. Trust is defined as a confidence. 
It's a sense of confidence that we get from a proven track record of someone or something coming through for us when we need them. You ever had to to confide in somebody ever just have to share something with another person that you just knew you didn't want anybody else to know other than you and this other person? How did you choose that person? It was somebody that you knew in your life that had a track record of being able to keep confidences. You had a confident feeling you knew because they had a proven track record that they could keep your secret. And so you went and you told them what they needed to know in confidence. Now, you may not trust that same person to fly you to California if they've never flown a plane. But you trust them in this situation. It's why we have for us one of the reasons why we have for us throughout the Old Testament, whether it's in the poetry section, the history section, the law section or the prophetic section. We have so many instances of the psalmist or the prophet or the lawgiver saying God came through for me. Think of the Psalms. There's there's different types of Psalms. There's Psalms of praise, Psalms of thanksgiving, Psalms of lament. Each and every one of those Psalms has some evidence, except for a couple of the Psalms of lament. Each and every one of those Psalms has some evidence of God answering the prayer of the psalmist. Think of the miraculous works that were given to the Israelites as they were freed from slavery. They knew that God could be trusted. They didn't put their trust in God because they grumbled and complained. Of course, not like us, right? But they had those evidences of God coming through for them when they needed God to come through for him. So they could have confidence that in their difficulty, that God would come through for them. And that's the picture we have here in knowing him and acknowledging him, confessing him because we know him in not leaning on our own understanding, but resting and confiding and having confidence in him that he will then in his favor, make our paths straight. A better word there might be smooth, not necessarily straight. The the idea of the straight road or the straight path is a is a parade route. That is given when you're expecting a visit from somebody who is royal or somebody who is important. If the president were coming to visit you today, would you like just leave a whole bunch of trash and junk in the way that you knew he was going to approach your house? No, you'd be out there. You'd be sweeping the sidewalk. You'd be making sure the front door worked and everything. The door wouldn't stick. You would make everything as smooth as possible, as easy as possible for him to get there. If we trust in God, he will make our paths smooth so that when we are on the path to our appointed end, we will get there and be sure that we will arrive there safely and in his arms. The Bible is full of examples of other things that we put our trust in, our hope in. We put our hope in humanity. If you haven't figured it out by now, humanity will fail you. We put our hope in wickedness. We put our hope in violence and oppression. We put our hope in riches, which we'll deal with here in a moment. We put our hope in idols, in military power, in political power, in religious ritual, in our own righteousness. 
oftentimes we put our trust in anything but God. But if we want our paths as difficult as they may be to be smooth, we are called to trust in God. So trust brings God's favor. Secondly, humility brings God's favor. Look at the next verses there, seven and eight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Turn your back on evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. When it comes to wisdom, when it comes to making decisions in my life, man, I think I've got it just nailed on my own. I understand things. I, I, I know what it means to be wise, so I don't need any help. It's called arrogance. It's called pride. I had a big decision to make most recently. I was planning on going to take care of it by myself, but Michelle said, you mind if I tag along? And thanks be to God, she was there. Because she saw something I didn't. I didn't have to rely on my own wisdom in that case. I, I, I relied on Michelle's wisdom. And thanks be to God, I have somebody who is greater than Michelle. I have God to rely upon, to God to humble myself before and say, Lord, you know what? I, I've got some ideas here, but you are the ultimate giver of wisdom. You are wisdom. Let me rest. Let me be wise in your wisdom and not in my own arrogance. Help me do the right thing according to your glory rather than the wickedness or the politics or the riches that I rest in on my own. And what does God's favor look like before those who humble themselves before him? It says this will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. And this is written in the original language, very much like that first portion where we get long life and 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 uh, a long and prosperous life. It's written almost ambiguously to give us a double meaning there. Yes, we may have health and nourishment here on this earth, but that idea of writing body and bones in this in these two parallel passages, these two parallel lines brings a wholeness of health. A wholeness of reconciliation between the body and the soul, which will only be true, which will only be fully true. Excuse me. It is true of us now who follow God and call Jesus our savior, but it will only be fully true when Jesus returns and we are reunited with him, with God and reconciled to him once and for all. So trust brings favor. Humility brings favor. The next thing that brings favor is worship. Worship brings favor. The word honor there in verse nine in other places in the Old Testament is translated glorify. Glorify the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your crop. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Do we worship God with our wealth? Now, it's not wrong to be wealthy. There are plenty evidences in the Old Testament and the New Testament of men and women who were wealthy. But they were hit with the question, do you worship God with your wealth? Do we trust in God or do we trust in our wealth? Do we rely on God or do we rely on our wealth? Is God the basis for our fullness, our completeness? Or is our wealth 
The use of the word first fruits in these verses ties this teaching together with the temple system. And it's a way that the original audience would have been very familiar with. At the beginning of the harvest season, you would take those first few tomatoes or grapes or peas or wheat or whatever it was. And you would bundle it up. You've been waiting so long for those tomatoes, but you take the first ones and you bundle them up and you take them to the temple. And you say, I give these to God. Why do you give them to God? Does God need tomatoes? No, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But as you gave your tomatoes to God, you say, everything I have belongs to you. And I trust you for the rest of this. Man, I really want to eat this brand new fresh tomato. It's the first one. But I trust you for the next one. I trust you that you will continue to provide. And I worship you and honor you with what I have by being willing to give it back to God for his use. We as a culture worship our wealth, I think. The last several crashes or corrections, we heard stories of people, usually stockbrokers, who lost vast amounts of wealth because of the stock market, flinging themselves from skyscrapers because their hope was in their wealth. They worshipped their wealth. Not all of us take that extreme measures when it comes to our wealth. But how many of us bank our entire worth upon our wealth? Unless you think I'm only picking on the wealthy, the poor people have the same problem. The poor person is always looking for that next monetary fix. Thinking that the only way they can survive is by the next check that they receive. Of course, we don't have first fruits today, but we have the system of tithes and offerings. And God says through the Father, says those who worship God with their wealth will have full barns and full vats of wine. Now, this doesn't mean this is not the seed money idea of the American prosperity gospel, where if you drop the 20 in the offering plate, God's going to drop the 20,000 square foot mansion. On your piece of property. This is the idea that God rewards those who are faithful to him with their money. Now, sometimes the reward comes through what we call ordinary means. If you get yourself up on a budget to where you are tithing on a regular basis, that's like the first fruits of what you get. Well, it's the second fruits because the way our our tax system is set up, the government gets it first. But you give the first fruits of what you have. You those people have a tendency to be better with money than people who don't. They have a tendency to be able to grow their finances. I remember talking several years ago to a couple um, who had gotten onto that that Dave Ramsey system, the envelope system. And the husband told me, he said, you know, what? I hated it at first because I used to be able to go out and take my check card and swipe it and get me a cup of coffee, get me some lunch, do whatever I wanted to. But now I had agreed to an allowance. I hated it. I blew through that money by Tuesday and I had to either starve or eat at home for the rest of the week. He said, but then I learned something. I learned, you know what? It's not so bad. It's a lot less expensive and the coffee he made at home tasted a lot better anyway. He didn't need to eat out. He could eat at home. And I found out that not only could I live well within my means, but I could squirrel away a buck or two every week. 
And every now and then I could buy some things that I really wanted, like books or tools or tools or books or books or tools, he said. Now, the motivation behind them getting on that budget was not to be able to buy books or tools, but to glorify God more and more with their wealth. To worship him and to show that they had control over their money. Their money didn't have control over them. Trust brings favor with God. Humility brings favor with God. Worship brings favor with God. And finally, submission brings favor with God. At the end, the last two verses of today's passage, we're told not to despise the Lord's discipline or resent his rebuke. The despise and the resent taken together there in those parallel lines. Um, you know what? As an aside, let's stop here for just a second before we get submission. I'll back up just a, a hair. If you look at the, the book of Proverbs there, it is formatted in our English Bibles, very similar to how the Psalms and much of the prophets are formatted. You have a line and you have a line underneath it that's indented. Sometimes two lines underneath it that are indented. That shows a parallelism. It helps us, the second line helps us to understand more fully the first line. Sometimes the the author of Proverbs, especially in the second part of Proverbs, does that through contrast, where it gives you one thing and then gives you the opposite of that. Other times it does it through parallel comparison like it does here. Do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke. But those lines are set apart there, not just to make it easier for us to read, but for us to be able to see in English the parallelism that's there. And we'll get more into that as we go deeper into the book of Proverbs. But submission brings us favor with God. We take the despise and the resent verbs together there. And and it reminds us to not violently turn our back or violently reject the discipline that God gives us. God is going to discipline us, it tells us here, because we are the son that he delights in. The mark of God's favor in response to our submission to his discipline is his adoption and love. God is going to come to us and at times he is going to correct our path because we are trying to wander off the path of discipline, of wisdom. And much like parental discipline can be painful, whether it's through not sparing the rod or whether it's just through the parents not allowing us to do the things that we want to do. God's discipline can be painful. But it's a sign of two things. Solomon here introduces us to the the doctrine of adoption. We are children of God. It says here that the reason he disciplines us is because he loves us. He is as a father to the son that he delights in. Paul references this in the book of Romans. We no longer fear the horrors of being enslaved to sin. Because we are sons of God. We are reconciled to God. He delights in us. We have been moved through the work of Jesus from a place where God looks at our works and hates them because the best that we can come up with in our righteousness is filthy, rotting medical waste. We are moved through adoption to a place where God looks at us and delights in us. 
He sees the works that we try to do on his behalf and for his glory. And as bad as they are at times, as much as we stumble in trying to glorify him, he looks upon us with favor as a father looks upon his child whom he is proud of. Solomon introduces us to adoption, but Solomon also shows us something about the father's teaching that we've seen so far in these verses. It's just it's not just the teaching of a human father to a human son. The father is teaching us God's teachings and God's commands. We would typically, when we see those two words at the beginning of verse 11, my son, we would typically think of this as the beginning of a new discourse by the father. But the rest of those language, the rest of the language of verse 11 and 12 ties this back into the rest of what we've already looked at. And it parallels the beginning of the passage. My son, do not forget my teachings. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. We see here that what the father is teaching his child is not his own wisdom, is not worldly wisdom, but is God's wisdom, is the words of God. Parents, when members of this church, you have been gifted by God to the children of this church to teach them the discipline and rebuke of God. So that they will grow up to be children who fear and love God. And children You have been called to obey your parents because if they are seeking to raise you in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, they are seeking to raise you according to God's teachings and according to God's law. And each of us are called to be submissive to God's favor, to God's discipline so that we might have his favor in our life. Trust brings God's favor. Humility brings God's favor. Worship brings God's favor. And finally, submission brings God's favor. To develop trust in our lives, we need to get to know God. Get to know him in his world and especially in his word. Don't pass up opportunities to learn about him and his ways. As you seek to know him better, you will find that you trust him more. You have that confidence in him because you know he will come through for you. Humble yourself before God. Do you realize, do you know that you are the creature and he is the one who has created us? He didn't make God didn't don't make God come to you and humble you as he did Job. Remember, Job came before God and said, look, basically what he said, look, if I was running my life, I could do a lot better job than you'd have. And God said, let me ask you a few questions. I spoke the world into existence. Did you help me engineer everything? Did you help me design the animals? Did you help me stop the oceans from encroaching upon the land? Did you help me keep the waters back so the land would not be flooded? I don't remember you being there. Were you there? And Joe finally had to look at him and say, you're right. You're God and I'm not. I will rest in you because you are far wiser than I. Thirdly, learn to worship God, especially with your wealth. God doesn't give us wealth in order to in order to make us feel better. God doesn't give us wealth in order for us to rely upon it and upon it alone. God gives us wealth because we are called to be stewards of what he has given to us. And like Job, he might choose to take it away from you. 
And that's got to be okay. That can't be where you place all of your hope. But what he does give you, we should use to worship him, whether it's through the giving of the tithes and offerings, whether it's through the supporting of missionaries around the world, whether it's just through just being willing to give a helping hand, even when you know you're probably getting taken. That's where I struggle. It's like, man, I know that guy's probably just going to go buy stuff he shouldn't buy with the money I'm going to give him. But God, you use it. And finally, fourthly, submit, learn to submit ourselves before God. Brothers and sisters, I'll be the first to tell you discipline hurts. God's discipline hurts. It doesn't hurt him as much as it hurts me, I'm sure. But it hurts. But you know what? It means he loves me. It means he delights in me. It means he cares about my earthly holiness. And he wants me to be more like him. And we know he loves us because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in thinking about that, as much as God's discipline hurts, it doesn't hurt as much as it should. That fell on the cross instead of on me. Trust God. Humble yourself before God. Worship God and submit to God. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for these words that you have given to us. Words that teach us how to find favor with you. Help us to live a life of trust, of humility, of worship, and of submission. And remind us of the great favor with which you look upon us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.